I couldn't ask for a more perfect lead-in to today's sermon than a testimony like what we heard. Becoming a Christian changes everything, doesn't it? It literally changes everything. There's not one aspect of your life that remains the same when you become a Christian. One of the primary changes that we see when we become a Christian is we now live in a world that is hostile to the way we view things. And one of the primary changes that we see is that in this hostility, it can feel like we're on the losing team, we're on the losing side. And sometimes it does good for us to remember the big picture, and that's what Peter does in this little letter that he wrote to these Christian exiles in different places. He, he gave them the, 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 the big picture. We have this great salvation through Jesus Christ, the first couple chapters there through verse number 10 of chapter 2. Because of these changes, because of this great salvation, because we're citizens of another country, uh, the kingdom of heaven, we have to relate to this world in a certain way. We have to live a life that is an example of what our goals and our desires are. And then he, he finishes up by reminding the people that Jesus is coming. And all of us, it would do well for us to remember that Jesus is coming. And so knowing what we know about our future citizenship, about where we are going to be in heaven, what it's going to be like, we, it causes us to behave differently in our primary relationships. It, it literally changes the way that we think about everything. And there are three primary relationships that Peter addresses in this little epistle that that we need to think clearly about how we are going to um, relate to the people. The first one is our relationship to the government. We are to live as model citizens, are we not? And to live as a model citizen doesn't mean that we're just obeying the laws because then there's nothing commendable about it. But Peter said... That as we obey the law and as we live within the confines of the state of Virginia or the United States of America, we, we exercise our, our, the goodness, the, the, the good things in life, and we, we abound in good works. But, and then we also saw from what Peter said that it's not only government, but it also has to do with our employer, how we relate to our employer. We are to be an incredible employee, but above that, some of you know that some of your employers are not the most ethical people in the world, right? Especially if you work in government, but we won't go there. We already talked about government. Uh, and, um, and I talked about the car dealer, Honest Pod, that was the most dishonest car dealer in town where I was growing up. And how, how do you relate to that kind of employer? How do you relate to an employer that doesn't have scruples, doesn't have any kind of, of ethical um, compass, it seems like. The answer is that you submit yourself to that employer, but at the same time, you don't get drawn into what they are doing wrong. And you remember that you're living for Jesus Christ. Well, the third primary relationship is that of your marriage, your family, and how you live in your family. And so now Peter addresses this. And the interesting part about all of this is that Peter in each one said, submit, submit, submit. Now, I find that very interesting that we are to submit. 
We are to submit to our government. We are to submit to our employer. We are to submit to our um, unsaved spouses. Why do we do that? This is a very big question. Why, why did he say submit? Why didn't he say, you know, protest or, or preach Bible verses or whatever else? Why did he say the word submit? The answer is that our life here is a living testimony to how great God is and how great our trust in that God is. So therefore, we submit with the idea that we're submitting to God who entrusts us with what we're going through in our lives. We're left to be a testimony. And so if we're going to have an impact upon our culture, we must submit to the social order, the social structure, the social patterns that God has designed. We can't be rebels. We can't demand our rights. I have the right to do this. We can't feel superior to everybody else because we have an eternal worldview and, and we understand the nature of things better than other people. No, what we do is we submit to the social structures that, are, that have been placed, first of all, here by God, and then also the social structures that man has set up that are honorable, and we, we just submit to them. That's really hard to do, isn't it? Um. Depending on what stage in life you are, depends upon how difficult each one is. My parents, or my parents, my children, tell me I drive like a grandfather now. I, I drive like a grandpa. But when I was a teenager, my theme song was I Can't Drive 55. You know what I'm talking about, right? You change. And so Heather said um, one time, you never slow down when there's a cop. I said, I don't need to, okay? I drive like a grandpa. But anyway. So now we're to a passage of Scripture, and I'm going to be honest with you, on the surface, it it seems abrasive, it rubs against our culture, it uh, just kind of rubs us the wrong way, and then you look at the structure and you see, wow, Peter spent six verses talking to wives and one verse talking to husbands, what's up with that? And you're asking yourself that question. Well, it really is, if you'll pay attention to it, it is so fascinating when you unpack and see the cultural setting and what all was going on, you'll, you'll have a totally different view of this little passage of Scripture. But let's look at chapter 3 and verse number 1 and read it together. And um, then we're going to start talking about it. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now remember the premise. The premise is... If believers, if we're going to have an impact on our culture, then we need to observe the social structure and submit to it. And that is how it was designed by God. Now, it's not a very popular teaching. I was in the grocery store one day this week. Do you know what I did not say? I did not see in the grocery store when I'm standing in line to pay. I didn't see any magazine that said she became great because she submitted to her husband. Have you seen that one? Because I haven't. I haven't seen the magazine that said the 10 most submissive wives in Hollywood. I haven't seen, I haven't even seen a magazine cover that said five tips for inward beauty. They're non-existent because it rubs exactly opposite of the way our our world is. And what Peter is, is saying in these verses is not that women are to be subjugated. He's not advocating that. 
He's not saying that women are second class citizens. Rather, and I'm going to I'm going to show this in just a moment. The very fact that he's addressing women wives in a marriage proves that he valued and elevated the role of women in the culture of the day. Now, remember, he's not discussing Christian marriage here. He's referencing a mixed marriage, a Christian wife who's married to a non-Christian husband. And what is her goal? What is if you are a wife married to a non-Christian husband, what is your goal for him? The answer is, you want to see him saved. And so Peter is addressing these wives with that idea in mind. And I already said, you know, well, sure, he devoted six verses to the women, one verse to the husbands, and what, what is up with that? Well, here is what is very interesting. In the culture in which they lived, in Asia Minor, where this letter went out to, a woman was viewed as no more, now this is in the pagan culture, than a slave or a piece of property. That's offensive just to think about it, isn't it? In the Greek culture in which Peter lived, and the people, of course, to whom he wrote, they were scattered in a, in a Greek world in the Roman Empire for a woman to change her religion without her husband doing so was unthinkable. Why? Because Peter's, in Peter's day, women were treated like sheep and goats. Their opinion was considered irrelevant, immaterial, and unwanted. There was a basic principle. It was called uh, pro, patria protesta. And it meant that while single and living in the father's house, a, a daughter was completely under his fa- her father's power, and he could have her killed if he wanted to. That same principle carried on over into marriage, and it said that when she became married, she was under her husband's power, and he could literally have her killed if he wanted to. And in both cases, and this is what's astounding about it, in both cases, there was no legal recourse. There was no charge of murder. There was no jail time. Nothing like that. That was the way the culture was set up. So the woman was thought of merely as somebody who served the needs of a male population. That, that if you think about it, in many of the different cities that Paul went, there was a temple cult prostitutes, right? And so they served the need. That's, that's how they thought of women in that day. It was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. The very fact that a woman would adopt any religion other than her husband's violated the Greco-Roman ideal of an orderly home. And because prosperity and well-being were were dependent upon religious forces back in that day, disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family, but to the society. And so it was looked down upon. So whenever there was a natural disaster, whenever there was a famine, whenever there was drought, whenever there was an economic downturn, do you know who they blamed? They blamed Christians. Because Christians weren't worshiping the local gods and and uh, christians were blamed for everything they introduced the new god they were upsetting the religious status quo of the of the empire it's so bad and i'm going to get off of this offensive part but i i want to give you one more there's a roman poet his name is juvenal and he wrote satire and he said this now he's talking about very wealthy families here he said among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to the man. 
Because she lacked the capacity for reason that a male had, she was ruled rather by her emotions and was, as a result, given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. Now, how'd you like to be a woman in that society? So when a woman who was viewed as a slave or an animal and not much more, became a Christian independently of her husband, the potential for conflict, the potential for embarrassment and difficulty was much greater. And this, this is why Peter spent six verses speaking to wives. Doesn't that make sense? When you, when you understand the culture of the day, he was, he was addressing them. He elevated them. Um, Becoming a Christian can pose a serious threat even today and oppose some serious problems then. In the Christian assemblies where this woman uh, was, was uh, attending, then she would, she would eventually learn verses like Galatians 3.28 where it says there is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. And what is, what is this saying when he says there is neither male nor female? The Bible is saying, not that there's no genders, the Bible is saying that male and female are equal in importance under God. And that was radical for its day. So so the, the wife, she's going to these assemblies and she's learning that she's an equal in value to her husband because she's created in the image of God. Today, we don't think of that as being revolutionary, do we? We, we look at it and we think, well, duh, of course they are. But back then, it was, it was not that way at all. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Okay, now, take yourself back to first century Rome with this, this Greek influence on, on the thought of the day. Place yourself in a, in a Christian assembly and pretend for just a moment that you are a Christian wife with an unsaved husband and you're in a church teaching the exact opposite of what the rest of society believes and even what your husband believes. Now, if you're in that situation, what kind of temptations would you face? There's a number, aren't there? I mean, this this woman is going to learn the Christian ethic that men and women are equal under the Creator. She's going to understand that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. She's going to see that she has a superior understanding to her husband of what it meant to be human, made in God's image. And she sees this new Christian assembly. And she sees that other women in the assembly who have their husbands in the assembly with them, they're not treated poorly. They're not treated like like property they're treated like equal in the image of god they aren't ignored they're not abused they're not threatened what do you think that her potential temptations are go find a christian husband right wouldn't that be the natural temptation that'd be your temptation that would be mine get flee your current marriage find somewhere better find a christian husband that's one temptation Maybe, maybe she would want to preach to her husband, God, I want this marriage changed so badly, I'm going to help the Holy Spirit out. I'm going to preach to my husband. Right? Maybe, 
Um, she might demand her rights. Maybe she would sit down with her husband and say, listen here, buddy. I'm equal to you according to Scripture. And she demands her rights in her marriage. Would those not be temptations? Depend on your personality. Depend on your how you work things. Uh, depending on what you expect. These are all temptations. And it's a very real temptation in a Christian even today. Isn't it? Christian wives with unsaved husbands. And it's a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult marriage. He has not the goals that you have. He hasn't the understanding of these spiritual things that you have. And, and who, who doesn't want their husband to become a Christian, right? So with this in mind then, Peter teaches these women in six verses how to maintain a testimony and how to act when you're living with an unsaved husband. We're going to run through these very quickly. Number one, exercise submission. Exercise submission. What does he say? He says, likewise, wives are to submit to their husband. The principle here is headship. Submission is a normal part of life as God has designed it. God said, God said to, to submit yourself to government, submit yourself to your employer, submit yourself to the husband. He is not saying at all that women are inferior to the person whom they, to whom they submit. If that were true, if that were what the Bible teaches, then the Bible teaches also that Christ is inferior to God because Christ submits to the Father. 1 Corinthians Correct? 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10. Uh, chapter 11, I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 11, verse number 3. Christ is no way inferior to God. There's nothing inferior about Christ and there's nothing inferior about women. They are simply given a role that puts them in a place of submission to the headship of their husbands. Now remember this. Remember, the husband will answer to God how he led his household. The Bible makes that very clear as well. So there's a good reason for a wife to submit to her unbelieving husband. Look at verse 1 again. It says, so that even if some do not obey the word. I'm going to stop right there. See that little phrase, if some do not obey the word. Now, we don't speak quite like this in, in English, but in Greek, can, can I dive into the Greek for just one quick section um, second here? That is called a first class conditional. Its literal translation is if some don't obey the word. In Greek, the thought is automatically turned because of the construction to since some don't obey the word. It's, it's a guaranteed, it's a given. Since some don't obey the word. And in, in Peter's little epistle here, anyone who does not obey the word is an unsaved person. If you check it out, anybody who does not obey is unsaved. They're, they're not a believer. And so Peter is saying... Even if your husband's not a believer, submit to him that what? That they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Their submission is to win their unbelieving husband without a word. It's, 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 it's very important. They're one by their conduct. They're not one by the wife preaching to their husband. This is, this is so important because the wife wants her husband to change so badly and that's an honorable thing. She wants her husband to submit to God, wants him to become a believer, want them to go the same direction. And so she's constantly talking about it and it can drive a wedge 
Rather, what Peter says is to go ahead and and submit and let him see your conduct. The husband knows that she's a convert and it is by her lifestyle, particularly her submission to his headship, that he begins to see, listen to this, the beauty of Christianity and the beauty of submission. It's a beautiful thing to submit. She's praying for his salvation. She's living rightly, hoping that all this will reach his heart. The second thing that Peter says is to be faithful. Look at the next verse. Verse number two, when they see your respectful and, and pure conduct. Now, there's two components to this faithfulness that is brought out in this verse. The first one is the word fear. That word respectful, phobos. We talked about that already. Phobias. And, and it's, it's translated respect. It's a respectful fear. And it's not a respectful fear of the husband. This respect, this fear is not directed towards the husband, but rather it's directed to God. Peter always directs people's fear towards God. He was not suggesting that wives submit to their husbands, or I'm sorry, fear their husbands, nor was he even suggesting that wives should respect their husbands. Peter's point was that the good conduct of the wife stems from her relationship to God. A wife doesn't submit to her husband to show how godly she is. A wife doesn't submit to her husband to show how godly he is. She doesn't submit to her husband to avoid conflict, uh, not to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate her husband. She respects the Lord. She fears the Lord. And so therefore, she submits. So in essence, what you're doing is you're looking at your husband with all his imperfections, with all his quirks, with everything he does, and she's looking through the husband and she's looking to Jesus Christ. And she can look at him and she can say, I'm submitting to you because I respect Jesus Christ, because I fear Jesus and him alone. I don't fear you. Same thing with the government. We respect the government. We, we obey the government. We submit to the government, not because we fear the government, but because we, we respect and fear Jesus Christ. And when you do that, it changes the way that you, you think about everything involved. There's a second component here, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. He says, you're respectful and pure conduct. The, the, the word here is, is the word chaste. It's, it's freedom from moral defilement. Do you want to win your unsaved husband? Then don't break that trust. So you, your behavior is first respectful to God, and secondly, you have pure behavior. The husband, who has any kind of perception at all, will see the beauty of your submission. And then there's a third thing. And the third component is that you focus on inward beauty. Now, I really enjoyed studying these verses, and there's a whole lot of bad theology that's been preached in these next two verses. Look at verses 3 and 4. Tell me if you can spot how people can twist these up. No, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, clothing to wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now let me ask you a question. Is Peter saying don't wear makeup? Is he saying don't comb your hair? No, it's really way more fascinating than that. I've heard some really bad sermons on these two verses. It was a real problem in the day. 
with with women being outlandish and ostentatious with their their hair. Uh, the Roman poet, I'm going to quote him again if this is all right. Juvenal wrote this. Now this is Juvenal sp- speaking. He said there is nothing that a woman will not permit herself to do. Nothing that she deems shameful when she encircles her neck with green emeralds, fastens pearls to her elongated ears, and there's nothing more intolerable than a wealthy woman. Why is that? I'm going to explain in a minute. He went on to say, and I threw this quote up here for you because I thought it was kind of funny. So important is the business of beautification. So numerous are the tears and the stories piled one upon the other on her head. He's he's saying that they made a a big to-do over it. Well, what exactly is he talking about? Somebody tell me what the current trend in hair color is. Purple? Green? Pink? Red? If you're there and you think you're trendy, can I tell you, you're so first century. That was exactly what was going on in Peter's day. The wealthy women would were they were fond of wearing wigs made of blonde hair taken from people outside their area. How'd you like to wear another woman's hair? But this is also what they did. It's recorded that they dyed their hair purple, red, green. See, you're not trendy today. They were doing that a long time ago. So girls, dyeing your hair purple, you're not that trendy, but that's okay. You can keep doing it. Um, I think some of it's kind of cool. But this is what they're also doing, and I would not suggest doing this, is where it talks about all the jewelry. These women were literally taking like the whole wealth of their household and putting it in their hair. Any kind of, any kind of emerald, diamond, pearl, gold and they're just sticking it in different places and stacking it up and it's a really audacious just over the top display of wealth that's what it was it was a display of wealth do you want to know how rich i am look at my hair i got i'm wearing some other woman's hair and then i'm so rich not only am i wearing another woman's hair i'm also putting gold and emeralds and pearls and, and that's how wealthy i am and what were the other people in the church there were slaves in the church who were pieces of property. There were other people who were very, very poor in the church. And so there was a, a big distinction going on in the churches with all of this. And that is what Peter is writing about here. He's, he's not saying don't comb your hair. By the way, things haven't changed much today, have they? I, I remember reading a couple of years ago about a, a famous woman who spends at least $50,000 a year on her hair. Um, if I named her name, you would know who she was. I could spend $50,000 and my hair would still be as ugly as it always has been, but that's another point altogether. But what does Peter say? True beauty is where? In the heart. He says, don't let your adorning be on the outside. Let it be on the inside. There is a magnetic attractiveness to a woman who has walked her whole life with the Lord and just oozes the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't there? There there is a, a magnetic attraction about that kind of a woman. There's a real beauty in a gentle and quiet spirit, what Peter mentions. 
the most beautiful kind of woman is a woman with a meek and gentle and peaceful and calm and quiet disposition. The inner virtue uh, of that a woman would pursue and th- that she would um, pursue Christ and have these virtues, that's what wins a man's heart. Not only that, would you please notice that who this is precious in the sight of? What do the verses say that this is precious in the sight of? Precious in the sight of God. Dear wife, dear lady today, do you want to have a life where God looks at you and says, you are focusing on the precious things and focus on the heart? Inward beauty comes out. We have all experienced this. Whether it's a man or a woman, we've, we've seen a person from a distance and think, huh, that person's very attractive. And then you get to meet that person and they get uglier and uglier and uglier. Why is that? Because of what's on the inside. And there comes a point with some people where it doesn't matter how attractive they are on the outside, you can't stand being around them because they're so ugly on the inside. And so we understand that beauty comes from the interior portion and comes out through the outside. So focus on inward beauty. That's what's highly valued by God. That's what's beautiful to God. And then there's an example. Look at verses 5 and 6. And this is another two verses that some really bad sermons have, have come out of. But look at what verses 5 and 6 say. It says, For this is how holy women who what? Hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So now he's going back to the, the holy women in the Old Testament. And he's saying... You can do this because they who hoped in God did this. And then notice what he says, verse number 6. He says that um, he gives a specific example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything frightening. I've been trying to get my wife to call me Lord for years and it hasn't worked. I said, but Sarah, in anyway, she's in the nursery so I can say that. But what is the portrait that Peter is painting? He's he's painting a portrait of a wife who is marked, first of all, listen to this, her hope is in God. Is your hope in God? If your hope is in God, it's not in your husband. It's not in having a good marriage. It's not in being successful in this life or anything else. It's, it's, It's in God. And what grows out of that hope is fearlessness. Isn't that what the verses say? They don't fear anything that is frightening. She doesn't fear the future. She laughs at the future. The presence of hope is is in the invincible sovereignty of God. And it drives out all fear. Or to say it more carefully and realistically, the daughters of Sarah fight anxiety that rises in their hearts, that wage war on fear, and they defeat it with the hope in the promises of God. How wonderful, how marvelous is that? It's it's a wonderful thing to know that we can hope in God and and this hope just casts out all of our fear of our present circumstances. But you may be here and you're saying, yeah, but pastor, you know what? I'm married to a Christian husband and and he's a good man. What do do I do in that case? Because you're you're speaking to women who don't have a Christian husband. Let me just give you uh, seven things very quickly by way of application. I'm just going to read through them and make very little comment on. Number one, and this comes from Wayne Gruden, by the way. 
he wrote a book called On Christian Manhood and Christian Womanhood. He said, submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. Allegiance to Christ takes priority over all human allegiance. And so submission uh, does not mean putting the husband in front. It's always putting Christ first. Secondly, submission does not mean giving up independent thought. You think on your own. You, you, you dialect with your husband. That would be the third thing, by the way is she doesn't give up um, efforts to influence and guide her husband. And so when you submit to your husband, it doesn't mean that you give up all independent thought and you never talk to your husband about things. The exact opposite is true. You, you should keep trying to influence him for good, influence him for Christ, giving him godly counsel. Submission, number four, does not mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. She should not do anything that's contrary to the clear moral teachings of Scripture, right? So she doesn't give in to every single demand. Number five, submission is not based upon lesser intelligence or lesser competence. I'm going to be honest with you. There's some marriage. I can tell which one easily is smarter than the other one, wiser than the other one. And if men are honest, they know what I'm talking about, too. It has nothing to do with intelligence level that you submit. It has everything to do with the fact that you're in Jesus Christ. Number six, submission doesn't mean being fearful or timid. You don't have to be that way. And then number seven, submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. Remember this, Christ feared nothing being submissive to God, even to the point where he shed his blood on the cross. He never feared anything. Christ went to heaven. And the Bible says that He's seated at the right hand of the Father and He's receiving the glory of countless multitudes of people. And do you know what the Bible says will happen if we honor and obey God in this life now? When we get to heaven, we will also receive glory. So dear wife, just remember this, that you are submitting to Christ, not because you're inferior, but if you submit to Christ... And you keep it up. When you get to heaven, God will glorify you. Isn't that awesome to think? Let me close. God designed the relationship between a husband and wife to represent the relationship of Christ and the church. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians 5? It does. This is the deepest meaning of marriage. And that is why ultimately the roles of headship and submission are so important. If our marriages are going to tell the truth about Christ and His church, we can't be indifferent about the meaning of headship and submission and let it not go without saying that God's purpose for the church and for the Christian wife who represents it is that her everlasting holy joy will be in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't it sound great that if you obey Christ, you do the hard thing now, you submit now, that one day... The result, the Bible says, that you have everlasting joy. It's greater than a temporary reprieve from an ungrateful husband. It's greater than the burden that you carry because your husband is unsaved. It's an everlasting joy. And you can look through your husband to Jesus Christ and you can say, Christ is worthy of my hope. Christ is worthy of my trust. Christ is worthy of my respect. Therefore, husband, I can gladly submit to you because I'm thinking about the eternal weight of glory that I will receive when I get to heaven. Amen? What a joyful passage. This is not the subjugation of women. This is the elevation of women in a society that didn't elevate them at all.
Well, I'm going to stop here. Next week, we'll address the men. And guess what? If the women had one problem, what was the man's problem? The exact opposite, wasn't it? We'll talk about that next week. Lord, we thank You for the, the truth of God's Word that, um, that there is a, a headship and a followership and ultimately we're all following Christ. And I know, I know, I know because I talked to them uh, this week even that there are women whose husbands are not believers and it is just, it is just a terrible thing in their life. There are women whose husbands might claim to be believers, and if they are, they're very immature in Christ as well. Lord, I pray that You will strengthen these women, that You will help them to place their hope in You, gladly submitting to their husbands, knowing that there will be eternal joy because they obeyed You in the hard things. And Lord, for those who are married to an unsaved spouse, I pray for their salvation as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.